Hi everyone, and welcome to Anthropologist to Go, a podcast series brought to you by the Department of Anthropology at Aarhus University. The concept of this podcast is pretty simple. In each episode, we invite an anthropologist on a walk to talk about their research and their experiences in the field of anthropology. So join us on this short walk and talk and learn more about the study of humans as social and cultural beings. Enjoy. In a way, I think I have always been an anthropologist when I look back on my life. Okay. So what I became was I became a trained, academically trained anthropologist. Right, right, okay. <laughs> Today, I'm in the company of Annalina Delsko, who's an associate professor at Aarhus University's Department of Anthropology. In this episode, Lena and I explore some of the highlights of Lena's academic career and her knowledge of emotions, embodiment, and the process of fieldwork and academic writing. So with this short introduction, I'll let Annalena tell you all more about who she is and what she does. So my name is, uh, I've got a tricky name because my name is Annalene Delsko. But I was always called, and I call myself Line. Mm. Some people find it awkward because uh, it kind of feels like a nickname because my full name is Anneline. Right. But still, I prefer Line. Yeah. On the other hand, my name is Anneline, so I always write Anneline, so okay. people get confused. Anyway, Katrine, <laughs> my name is Line, and um, I'm an associate professor in. Uh, Anthropology at the department, yep. and um, I just turned 60. That doesn't really have to do with it, but that's, oh, that's nice. part of my idea about who I, who whom I am. Yes, yes. I am a. It's called director of the PhD program for anthropology global studies and the study of religion and it's a a position where I coordinate activities for the PhDs, I assess PhDs, PhD applications for our open core and I'm kind of an anchor person for the PhDs and the three departments, yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, I've done with my three-year circle uh, when we reach the end of this year. Okay. And in a way, I would like to continue. It's just that I wish to do other stuff, so I won't continue. But it's uh, it's very joyful. Uh, that's a part of my job. One of them that I really love the most, not to be a director of the program, but to be a PhD supervisor. Yeah because it's for such a long time that you follow a PhD student and it's quite a thing to pass through a, a PhD a program of three years and right. people usually struggle. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, somehow I follow that process and, and f- yeah. yeah become part of it in some way or another as a supervisor. Mm. I always feel that I'm not as smart as them, so my role is more like, you know, 
supporting them when despair yeah, yeah. kind of overwhelms them and yeah. here and there put a stick into their wheels so that they have to pause and rethink and so but um, yeah. they always end up being much smarter than anything I could do and that's very satisfying. My PhD project was about um, uh, it's a long time ago. I did my. I'll start before it started, yeah. because my master thesis was about pregnancy and women who had their first newborn baby. Okay. But uh, I was pregnant myself. It was kind of a pragmatic solution to a problem. Okay. <laughs> I wanted to go to Bali and study dance, but then I ended up in Rue, of all places, next to Aarhus, and uh, interviewed newborn mothers. And um, after that, and when I had my own kid, I didn't feel like writing that thesis. So okay. I wrote an, a different thesis about... Um, another subject that I can tell you about later because it had to do with my former work as a, an actor. Oh yeah. But um, that left me with a, a bunch of data um, uh, from this field work that I didn't really know what to do. Um, I, I kind of didn't want to waste it and on the other hand I'd finished my master thesis and what to do with all that. Right. So I figured out I should do something about motherhood in quite a different context. Mm. And I learned that at that time Brazil was um, the global champion in relation to percentage of uh, cesarean sections. Okay. They had a very high percentage, almost around 40% of all uh, births in childbirths in Brazil were um, C-sections. So I thought I should do something along that because at that time there was all this natural birth giving in Denmark and yeah. no women, you know, women felt that they have somehow failed with if they had a C-section. So I thought it would be interesting to compare. Right. So I went to Brazil and I found out that uh, for different reasons I happened to do my fieldwork in northeast Brazil in a poor neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And the poor women who also had C-sections, they, um, when I asked them about why, they weren't really that interested, interested in the birth, uh, the okay. birth giving themselves. They, they were more interested in having a sterilization, a tubal ligation. I mean, right. yes, right. And. Um, at that time, that was an illegal procedure in Brazil, but you could have it done if you had three cesarean, a history of three C-sections. Okay. So the trick was to get a lot of uh, cesarean sections, and then after that, have the medical permission to have a tubal ligation done. So uh, I ended up writing a thesis about why they wanted to have these um, sterilizations and um, in fact I ended up writing about being a mother in circumstances where it's very difficult to bring up kids right. and about being a poor citizen in Brazil and how body and emotion 
and rational thought somehow mix up and create this created this phenomenon very um, the high number of C-sections right. and um, that was from 97 to 2000 so and since then I've been coming back to the same neighborhood. Lena walks beside me cheerfully as she ponders her path through academia which wasn't always straight and narrow. She also pursued acting and this experience shaped her interests on emotion and embodiment when she returned to finish her masters. In a way, I think I have always been an anthropologist when I look back on my life. Okay. So what I became was I became a trained, academically trained anthropologist. Right, right. Okay. <laughs> so I got through, uh, I started on this academic training. And when I say it's, of course, I haven't been an anthropologist, but I've always been kind of a, you know, pondering upon all kinds of questions and observing yeah. life and enjoying to write about life and so so uh, it wasn't such a big step to okay. begin studying anthropology but I realized how boring academic training can be <laughs> so I left anthropology again I, <laughs> I studied for two years when I was in my early 20s and then I um, quit and yeah. I began in a small uh, group theater in Copenhagen where first we were trained as actors for two years yeah. quite a demanding training okay. at that time there was there were several uh, small theater companies where that worked with a Grotowski style of training where you really demand a lot from your body and I was trained there and we also worked with a scientist, a Chilean sci scientist who was a professor in France um, okay. on a psychologist on emotion and how to trigger emotion when you're on the stage. Okay. And I was trained in a particular way of working with emotions on the stage, okay. uh, which you access your emotions through your body. Yeah. You know, um, the American actor studio training where, you know, Marlon Brando and people like that, yeah. Robert De Niro, they're trained in this way where you, if you have to cry, you really remember the day you knew that your mother had died or something like that. And then you invest all yourself in that situation and you cry. Yeah. But yeah. you cry your own tears. Right. And it's quite a, a thing for a person to go through. And yeah. she wanted to, uh, together with our theater, uh, to develop this technique. It's called Alba emoting nowadays, where you access your own emotions through, through breath and muscle tension or relaxation. And, okay. and you can actually um, at least train your emotional apparatus in a different way through this method. Okay. So, um, but then I became a mother, Katrine. Yes. And uh, I was married to another actor from this theater group, and it was just 
we didn't have any money. Right. Um, we were very uh, enthusiastic, hardworking and all that, but um, in the end I thought I should do something that could lead somewhere with money. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Some kind of stable income. Yeah. And um, I began uh, studying anthropology again. Actually, I was so close to uh, study midwifery, I think it's called midwifery, uh, oh, become yeah, a midwife, midwifery, yes, yeah. I don't yes, know. Perhaps. <laughs> uh, but, uh, I ended up back in anthropology again. At that time, okay. Kirsten Hastrup had just started as a professor in Copenhagen, and mm. the institute had passed through several revisions of curriculum, and so so uh, the thing had the, the 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 whole thing had changed quite a lot. Okay. And I jumped in and I finished my master masters in. I did participant observation while being pregnant and yeah. after that also participating in the, these mødergrupper, yeah. groups of mothers, and, but I couldn't really get anything interesting out of it, Katrine. No. And my supervisor was uh, Kirsten Hastrup and she was much more interested in something, something I had been writing about emotions and yeah. um, when I said something about this doesn't really work for me Kirsten I'd rather do something on emotion in anthropology she said go for it yeah. and that's what I did right. Right. <laughs> so that's what I wrote my master thesis about yeah. and I'm uh, uh, it's funny because I wrote a master thesis about emotion in anthropology yeah. at a time where that was not a kind of a discussed theme. The first uh, American books had come about the anthropology of emotions and so, but it was quite undiscussed. Okay. And um, I had my particular approach to it because I came from uh, theatre, the theatre work. Yeah. So I brought all my experience from the theatre into it. And I actually wrote a thesis about um, anthropological body training. Mm. My argument was that when the the body of the anthropologist is such a huge factor, I mean, we bring ourselves into all these circumstances and right. we sweat and we suffer and we eat strange food and yeah. all that. So why not prepare our bodies as an actor would prepare his or her body to step onto the scene and play whatever character. Right. Um, and I kind of left it there. Then I got into my PhD project in Brazil and went off in that direction. Yeah. I've been working, uh, I mean, most of my work has concerned the role of emotion in human life, but this idea of body training, I left it there. And now I just got a small project from AUFF, the Aarhus University Research Fund. Um, to uh, do a project, we called it Embodying Academia, about, um, in a way, it's about anthropological body training. Yeah. Uh, um, I'll be working with different people, uh, a postdoc called Aya Smith, who will start after the summer and yeah. who will probably contact 
or who will contact some of the students. So okay. they will meet her. Yeah. And then um, uh, Joe Dumit and Andreas Röpstoff from Interacting Mind Center is part of the project. And then uh, an American anthropologist, Kathleen Stewart, who's uh, been writing about, I mean, one of her kind of famous books is called Ordinary Effects. Yeah. And she is both known for writing about the affective life, um, but also for writing in a special way. Okay. Uh, so we will do some writing workshops with her, hopefully, okay. when she comes. So. It's just uh, since then yeah. uh, until now, uh, there's suddenly a thread where um, that makes sense, right. at least to myself, around this idea of body training and yeah. also about writing styles that can capture all the bodily and emotional aspects of knowledge and, and field work, of course. Right, right. And today, somehow, when people invent all kinds of new discussions, I tend to think, well, didn't we discuss that already in the <laughs> 80s? But um, maybe we did, and luckily, uh, yeah. what we say in Danish, den dybe talergen, yeah. can be invented many times. Yeah. The same yeah. success and happiness. Right. <laughs> right. Perhaps a little bit different. Yes, it is yeah. a little bit different little every bit time. Different. That's anthropologically very interesting. Yes. <laughs> because every time it's twisted in a new way. Yeah. Even if we circle around some of the same questions in anthropology, and as anthropologists return again and again to field sites, those twists and turns make us see things a little differently. Lena looks at her own field site quite differently now than she did 20 years ago. For her, Brazil is no longer just a field site and her informants no longer just informants. At times I wonder why did I end up in that place because okay. Brazil is really, especially today, a rather hysteric place. Okay. Uh, but um, I ended up there. Yeah. One never really knows why. But uh, and I and I did the first study on the women and then yeah. the mothers, and then for two projects after that, uh, I focused on young people and their futures because that was one reason why oh, my book is about mothers yeah. fearing what will happen to their sons especially because okay. uh, um, many of them got attracted to criminal activities and yeah. that was dangerous for the whole family yeah. so um, I returned and followed the kids of some of these mothers and a lot of other young people and today uh, I still um, I, I, I'm preparing for writing a book on some of these women that I've known for more than 20 years now. And yeah. one of them is Aninha, who, whom I've known since she was 16. And okay. she's today 37 and the mother of two kids. So yeah. 
um, I've known them, known them for a long time, Katrine. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're no, and then I can't say they are informants anymore. No, no. They are friends and a strange kind of friends because um, it's a friendship formed by that odd situation of being an anthropologist and right and a participant in, in the anthropologist's research project. Right. Right. Yeah. The corona has hit Brazil uh, very badly, and two weeks ago or something, uh, one of my friends down there. Uh, can we sit for a while? Yes, Katrin? let's do it. One of my friends down there, who's called Inés, she wrote me on, uh, or she sent voice messages on uh, WhatsApp. Yeah. WhatsApp. Okay. And uh, she was just really panicking because uh, they were locked up in their homes and she has she's living with five kids alone with five kids okay. and two of them uh, three of them she had to place in other houses because there was some kind of rule about only being three people in each house okay. and uh, she had lost contact with the others and she was just very fearful and they didn't have any food and the neighbor woman had been screaming, I'm dying, I'm dying. Oh, no. And the ambulance came and later on it showed up, showed up that uh, she wasn't dying from corona. She was just feeling, her, the panic made her uh, feel breathless. Oh. So um, okay. it was an emotional reaction to the situation. Okay. She couldn't breathe. Right. And but Ines in her house listening to all that, you know, in in these neighborhoods, people are used to living in the street, just outside the house, chatting with people all day long and moving in and out of each other's houses. So being locked up like that was very um, strange. Right. Ines was panicking, and I was uh, sending a voice message back that. Uh, here in Denmark be a bit ahead and things are getting better and they will get better there too. Yeah. While I knew that in Brazil um, hospitals are really, I mean the facilities uh, for poor people are really bad and the president is an idiot and the whole thing is right now quite um, dangerous. But. Um, well, so my role was the usual. I was the one who could tell her about the world and things were getting better here and there and she, she should calm down and so and so and so. Mm. And, and then it happened in my own family that we had a tragedy with one of the young kids, my nephew. And I told her about it. And she asked some days later how my family was and I said, well, we have this thing going on. And then she began telling me to come, I mean, not to calm down, but she said, it's going to be good, Lene, it's going to be good, he'll be fine, it's yeah. going to be good. And now she, f she calls me or she sends, she sends me messages every day telling me, Eli okay. uh, he'll, be, he'll be good, things will be good. Yeah. And <clears throat> because she knows I've been sad yeah. where I am and uh, and I just thought, this is a, it's turning the, 
relationship we often fall into upside down mm. and I'm very touched by her uh, care yeah. for me and the fact that she's calling me every day sending me messages and sending me hearts and all that you can send on WhatsApp. Yeah. But uh, there's no more panic in, I mean, she's not sending me her own panic. She's not sending me all her own frustrations. When I ask, she says, we're fine, things are fine. Okay. So um, I'm just touched by the way that um, the moment her care is needed, yeah. uh, She's no longer that helpless person, uh, and um, well, I don't know what it tells me, but it's uh, it's certainly a moment where I see something different in the way she um, the way that you can care for other people in a neighborhood like that. Yeah. Uh, and yes, uh, as I said, they're not, no longer my informants. No. I've given them money for, I've paid for their children's education. Mm. I've paid when, you know, the same Inez once in a while. She lives close to a small river and it's so dirty. It's almost um, shit. I don't know okay. what you call it. It's really, it's very dirty, very yeah. dirty water in that river. Okay. And once in, uh, once a year almost when the water, um, when it rains a lot, the water comes into close to her house sometimes into the house, and sometimes they need new mattresses and stuff like that and I get these uh, videos where the water's into in in her house and um, and I sent money for new mattresses so you know um or some kind of medicine or but but mainly uh, children's education. Uh, so you see yeah. all these ethical guidelines, uh, I don't know what to do with them because how can I interview and write about people whom I also support economically? Mm. On the other hand, how could I write about them without support them economically? Right. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. so that's how it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But that's why I need to write together with them if, if, when I'm going to make this book. Lena's relationship with her friends in Brazil are both professional and deeply personal. She explains to me how losing a friend from Brazil was a particular kind of loss and how perhaps allowing yourself to listen with such experiences and emotions can produce a different, more human kind of anthropology. Uh, one of them died, um, that's almost 10 years ago, Grasa, mm -hmm. who was maybe the person I was closest to. Okay. And it, it was so strange. I had to uh, phone an older colleague in Copenhagen, Susan White, who, she mm -hmm. was also my PhD supervisor. Okay. And, and because I knew she, she had also been returning to the field, uh, still does. Yeah. And uh, she's so much. Uganda is so much part of her life, so it's no longer the field. Right. But I phoned Susan and I said, Susan, tell me, how does it feel when somebody, uh, you know, in Uganda died? Because I feel so terrible. Mm. It was a different kind of sadness or sorrow. 
Okay. Uh, it's as if you imagine that the field will always be there, right. just for you to come and go. Yeah. And suddenly, when someone dies, you realize that uh, that's not how it is. Yeah. But um, I, I, I don't know. I've, it was a loss of a different kind. Mm. It was my a, a life. Uh, out there right. that I could no longer access and mm. it, beyond uh, of course it was also just very sad she was around we were both around 50 yeah, okay. when she died so it yeah. was a very sad situation mm. uh, but yeah. but this was kind of you know uh, sometimes when you do field work Katrine, you feel so helpless and you depend mm. so much on the people out there and you're so grateful for whatever um, help or, or, you know, kind of care yeah. uh, and somehow, uh, and I don't know, you relate to people differently. Yeah. So uh, one is much more vulnerable somehow. Uh, yeah. Anyway, mm. and, and just recently, uh, half a year ago, uh, the person I always stayed with, she died. So, Susanita, um, so uh, slowly uh, they are leaving this world also. Mm. And we are of the same age, so yeah. Yeah. I'm also confronted with my own age, but also a difference in living circumstance. It's difficult to write about other people's longings and sorrows and joys if you don't allow yourself to be touched by sorrows and right. joys. Right. Uh, so um, in order to understand what takes place in another person, you have to experience something yourself, I yeah. think. Yeah. Like one of the classics in our discipline, Renato Rosaldus, about his wife's death which is exactly from that period way back, um, around 90 or when it was written. But uh, his argument is that uh, had he not suffered the death of his wife, he mm. would not have understood, I mean, not necessarily, but a death of, the death of a very loved one, he yeah. would not have understood the reactions that they told him about. Right he would have made a fancy academic argument out of something which had to be understood differently. Yeah. You have to understand differently. You have to listen with your own experience somehow. Yeah. And in fact, Katrine, that's what I really like uh, in our discipline and also when I read anthropologists write in that way. Mm. If they listen with more than just uh, their analytic brain mm. and if they dare to mix this different kind of knowledge and understanding uh, one learns much more right. from what they write yeah. yeah it becomes human in a different way if you find a different way of writing and also beginning to write you can tap that kind of understanding and bypass your analytic mind right that mind that tells you how an academic argument, argument should look mm. 
that mind that tells you that only if you do so and so can you produce proper anthropology and you feel completely locked because what you're sitting with doesn't fit into any of that. Mm. Um, if you kind of pause it yeah. and let it enter the picture later and start by writing differently so that you can access all your embodied understanding, all that which is not in words right. but is which you've been overwhelmed by, mm -hmm. uh, then there's a way of creating a bridge to the academic argument. Um, but you have to invest yourself and you have to mm -hmm. trust that uh, you will end up with your exam paper yeah. neatly finished. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, um, yeah, a different kind of writing is needed. A different kind of uh, listening inside oneself uh, for something which is not um, academic uh, in the usual sense. Our thinking can save us when we get into troubles because we know a lot of things. So if we just say to ourselves, no panic, mm. you know this and that and this and that, so just go forward. But uh, our thinking cannot teach us very much. I mean, you, you have to accept that what you learn, you learn differently. Mm. You learn to become a, an academic, not by reading a lot of manuals about how to write a paper, but by writing that paper and failing and seeing how others write and... Yeah have your heavy moments where the words work and the terrible moments where you get stuck. There's a certain kind of rigor to it also where you have to, I mean, standing there in the field completely without a sense and direction, you still keep doing your stuff and collecting these stories and watching how the prices in the supermarkets go up and down and up and down and you collect them and you write them into your book and you don't know where that's going to lead you. And you keep going, doing your... Um, all these... Um, I don't know what to call it. In no. Danish we call it Rupolsarbeide. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> you do your Rupolsarbeide. Yes. <laughs> you stay where you are. You stay in the middle of your own and other people's feelings and worries and all that. Mm. You write it down every night mm. and you keep going. And this kind of discipline has to go together with the other one. It's not yeah. a matter of feeling something grand and then write it down and it'll be super interesting. Because then it's just about me, me, me and people mm. will say, yes, very nicely written. Mm. But did you ever ask them what they thought about it? Right. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. but that's actually what I like. Uh, this mixture of something very practical, low-key, mm. hard work, do your things. Don't think that you need to be smart right now. Just do your work. Yeah. And then this listening for the over and undertones of what you have understood. Doing anthropology, then, is also about rigor, patience, and the nuts and bolts of the work. Lena's new project, Embodying Academia, might help students and faculty alike to cultivate those skills in our writing. For now, 
Lena has some simple advice for us on how to stick with it. Thank you for listening and goodbye till next time. Well, actually, Katrine, uh, because I wouldn't say that I use my body to access emotions. Okay. Emotions are, I rather, I rather focus on my body in order to not get lost in my emotions, but to have a, a place from where I can, uh, I don't know how to say that, but uh, this is what Aya and I will be, will be working with also. Um, mm. Aya is gonna make a few workshops with horse training. Okay. I mean, standing in front of a horse, mm. uh, you know, she's been doing, uh, her PhD is about management training and, you know, these courses where CEOs from big companies, they come out and work with horses in order to learn how to work with their own emotions. Okay. I mean, when you panic or when you feel that you lose control, how do you stand in front of that horse and stay? <laughs> and, uh, uh, and there's something in that which I think is super relevant for academic work and anthropology mm -hmm. also, that uh, you begin to trust that bodily capacity to just stay, right. just stand there in front of it. Uh, and whatever panic or feelings you have in relation to that horse or whatever is going on in the field and so, yeah. You breathe, sense your feet on the floor, and things sort themselves out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you will understand something along the way. And I think that's the basic. Breathe, feet on the floor, yeah. and you can cope with quite a lot of things when you remember to do that. Yeah. And even writing when you think you can't write, you just breathe, put your feet on the floor, and put that pen on paper and start writing. And it would be awful in the beginning, you write pages of shit that doesn't work, <laughs> but then we'll get there eventually. Yeah. So um, I think that's the only trick I know. But we worked a lot with it at the theater uh, training to, you, you know, because entering a scene and people expect something and you know that you may fail. fail. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing to do except staying there, mm. doing your best, go forward. If it's one of those days where you fail, you fail. And you won't die from it and others will play better and the audience will feel happy and they'll criticize you when they walk out of the door, but that's how it is and you won't die from it. Mm. And the next day you will be fantastic and that's how things are. Yeah. So, um, so it's a kind of bodily capacity to not run away either in your mind or your feelings when things are challenging challenging